Hello and welcome to this inaugural episode of Pod 45, the new podcast from Post 45 Contemporaries. I'm your host, Michael Doherty. As you found your way to our first episode, I think there's a pretty good chance that you already know what Post 45 and Contemporaries are. But in case you don't, Post 45 is a community of scholars working on literature and culture from, as the name suggests, the post-1945 period. The group was founded in 2006 with a strong focus on American culture, and that remains a big part of what we're interested in, but our outlook has become an increasingly global one, encouraging transnational and comparative approaches. At our website, post45.org, we provide a platform for publishing new critical writing, which we do regularly in two categories, peer-reviewed and contemporaries. Peer-reviewed is fairly self-explanatory, publishing long-form critical essays on an open-access basis in accordance with the professional standards of academic peer review. Contemporaries, however, which I manage alongside my co-editor Francisco Robles, our editor-in-chief Gloria Fisk, and our indefatigable associate editor Tyler Tennant, is something a little different. Contemporaries provides a forum for writers to converse with one another more directly and informally than in traditional academic publications. These curated conversations about contemporary culture, which we call clusters, are typically sets of essays on a common theme, though we do encourage and invite other formats. Prospective cluster editors pitch us on a theme, then we work with them and their contributors to hone the individual pieces and the direction of the cluster as a whole. Instructions on how to pitch us, by the way, follow at the end of this episode. Contemporaries essays tend to be shorter in length and more accessible in style than traditional academic articles. They're still intellectually rich and critically rigorous, but the voice is more immediate and personal. The conversations we foster are often between academic peers, but we're also interested in taking those conversations way beyond the academy. That goes for who we're writing for and who writes for us. We're launching this podcast as one more way to expand that conversation. Our clusters emerge out of collaborative thinking, writing and editing, and we publish them in the hope that they start further exchanges on Twitter, in classrooms, wherever. This podcast is, we hope, a way to both capture a little of that existing discursive spirit and to take it further. Our podcast episodes will serve as companions to individual clusters, each episode releasing two or three weeks after the corresponding cluster to give you time to digest the pieces before you listen. The episodes will take the form of discussions between a Post 45 editor, that's me, and guests including the editor or editors of the cluster at hand and one or two of the writers who contributed to that cluster. We're kicking off the podcast with a discussion of our recent cluster on Dark Academia, edited by Olivia Stoll and Mitch Terrio, which you can find on the website post45.org now. Dark Academia is a pretty capacious cultural phenomenon. On one hand, the term describes, as Mitch and Olivia write in their introduction to the cluster, an online subculture, a constellation of spaces on Tumblr, TikTok and Instagram, dedicated to a certain idea of the typically mid-century fashion and material culture of elite universities and their wealthy students. On the other hand, dark academia is a burgeoning literary subgenre, a type of campus intrigue novel that owes much to Donna Tartt's The Secret History. As Mitch and Olivia write, dark academia novels remix tropes from the gothic, the detective novel and other genres that have enjoyed immense success in the literary marketplace over the past few years, particularly in the young adult category. And yet, as the cluster suggests, dark academia is even more than those two things. This cluster powerfully presents dark academia 
as a lens through which we can understand the ills of the contemporary university, precarity and corporatization, debt and donors. Essays in the cluster also use the dark academia paradigm to think about how race, class and identity are mediated and regulated by those structures of the neoliberal university. Throughout these essays, as in any good novel of campus intrigue, the prize of a life of the mind comes attendant with nagging questions of guilt and complicity, but also with opportunities for liberation, reciprocity and resistance. So I'm delighted today to be joined to discuss all these things by Mitch Terrio and Olivia Stoll, who edited the cluster, and by two of their contributors, Dylan Davidson and Gunnar Taylor. I'd like to welcome them all to the podcast and invite them now to introduce themselves. Hey, I'm Mitch Terrio. Uh, I am, along with Olivia, one of the co-editors of the cluster, and I'm really excited to be here. Hi, I'm Olivia Stoll, and I co-edited the cluster along with Mitch. Um, I'm Dylan Davidson. I um, <clears throat> I wrote the essay uh, to be transformed in the cluster. And can I say this? I was the meme king of the group chat. Um, hey, I'm Gunnar Taylor. I'm the author of Tweed Jackets and Class Consciousness. Um, and I can confirm that Dylan was the meme king of the group chat. Thank you all very much for, for introducing yourselves and for being here. You've already alluded there in your introductions to the process of uh, pulling this cluster together and producing this cluster over the past few months. So I thought it might be nice to start off by asking you a little bit about how this cluster came together, uh, what the process of bringing it together uh, was, where this emerged from, um, so we can just get a sense of, uh, yeah, how this, how this came together and how this emerged. Yeah, I can start on that. So in some ways, like it sounds like a cliche, but like we met on Twitter, which I feel like is common for graduate students right now. Um, we all sort of hopped on to this buzzy thread almost exactly a year ago, I think, that was discussing dark academia, several of these novels. From that thread, like at some point, someone was like, we should do something about this. And then that became a group chat, which then became a seminar at ASAP, which then now became the cluster. Yeah, so I don't, I don't want to sound too conceited here, but I think my tweet was actually the origin of all of this because I was reading The Secret History on the recommendation of a friend of mine who is not in the Academy. Um, and I just tweeted, like, does anyone in the Academy talk about Donna Tartt? Like, you know, it seems like she, you know, has won prizes. She's incredibly popular. I'm reading this novel. It's great. And I don't know, we never talk about her. And uh, then it kind of blew up from there. And I think the thread you're talking about, Olivia, was kind of um, born out of my original post. So, um, yeah, I think that's how it all really, really started. Yeah. And I think that Rachel was the one who created the... Um the group, the group chat. And she said, this is wild. Like we all have so many thoughts on this. Um, we should do something. We should collaborate in some way. And I think the thing that I would kind of add or, or, or what I'm thinking about as Gunnar talks about, you know, this thread, which sort of emerged out of, I think a pre-existing kind of network of like contemporary lit Twitter which is like, I feel like I vaguely knew all of you as like a kind of reply guy or whatever. And like, there is this sort of group of people who were all mutuals or whatever. And um, there, there was a lot of sort of like pseudonymous joking that, I don't know, we kind of became human beings to one another um, through this thread. 
Um, and yeah, I think that that's like a, a cool thing is that like, I now see Twitter as sort of a, um, a, a, a place full of potential colleagues, um, and collaborators who I don't even know, you know, I can't envision what's going to happen next. Um, but it's like a, the most exciting or one of the most exciting parts of my, my academic social life, I think. That sense of, of collegiality, I think, really comes through in the, the cluster. When we commission clusters, we're always keen to uh, ask cluster editors to uh, see if they can get some kind of dialogue going between the pieces, have the, the pieces in the cluster speak to each other in some way. And it really felt with this one that we didn't need to ask you to do that because it kind of happened organically. And it's very present in all the pieces that they they are speaking to each other in a way that is not just trying to kind of shoehorn a link in to, to mention something else in the cluster. They really do kind of function as a coherent whole, which is one of the things that I that I like so much about it. That does really seem to be a product of of this this kind of journey that you've all all been on together. Yeah. And I think that that actually like sort of birthed the moment in the intro where Mitch and I like half jokingly posed the question of like, was the real dark academia the friends we made along the way? Like that came out as like in our drafting process. I think I like said that on the phone to Mitch at some point, but in like, we're being a little bit facetious there because obviously we close on the note that what's more important is, you know, solidarity and working to build something together and create something together. But in a very real way, I think that meeting these people and being a part of this project made me feel a sense of like collegial belonging in this sort of group of young scholars of the contemporary in a way that I didn't feel before that like this sort of friendship collaborator network existed. It's it's on a slightly personal note, but I I remember um having the realization that you all had like become my friends and I, I think it's hard to separate this process for me from like the second year of the pandemic in a way where I had sort of gotten into um, a routine. I mean, I was doing grad school from my mom's house in suburban Texas and I was not, I was away from my university and I was doing Zoom class and, you know, it wasn't, I mean, I was lucky enough to be with, you know, at home and, and that was nice, but um in like May of last year, I remember like I had a sort of harrowing near death pet experience. Um, and I like realized that I was confiding in this, this group about it. And then like, I almost had this sort of second order, like reflective moment where I was like, Oh my God, like, like I, I made, I made like real friends from doing this. And I think that that spirit, um, is in the work as well, because we, I don't know. I feel like, you know, if there's something I can't cover, it's like somebody else is going to get it. And that's a vision of what scholarship can be that, I don't know, it feels like way less ego driven than, um, than, than, than what I kind of came to, you know, like academia expecting like, oh, I have to like work on my CV or whatever. And now I just think of like, this is something that I can do because I have like an affinity and like my, my colleagues and friends will cover the other parts of it. I don't have to do everything. Yeah. I mean, and I think that, I mean, the, that trajectory that you just traced in the last part of what you said, Dylan, I think that that uh, maps really beautifully onto your piece. I mean, where in the cluster where you kind of trace this, um, this transition from um, 
being swept up in or negotiating this, um, you know, campus environment that wants you to want to be transformed in a certain kind of way that wants you to want to be shaped into a kind of, you know, rock star scholar, uh, you know, blazing the path on one's own. But then it, I, I just think it's such a true um, and, and resonant aspect of your piece, Dylan. And I think it's a current throughout a lot of the pieces um, in, in the cluster as well. Um, uh, just kind of like the, the ways in which this kind of collaborative work can uh, open up the horizon of possibility for um, what scholarship and, and, and thinking about super contemporary stuff um, might look like beyond that kind of, you know, lone trailblazer type type model. Um, and the other thing that, that you know, how we're describing the the process of this cluster cohering is making me think is that, I mean, there's something very dark academia about um, the process of this cluster's coalescing and formation, right? I mean, one of the, what would the word be? One of the controlling, you know, tropes or models that I think people use to understand what goes on uh, in dark academia communities and spaces online is the trope of DIY, right? Do it yourself. Um, and so uh, uh, many of the pieces um, pick up on this thread. Um, and in fact, Anna Queering uh, had a, just a wonderful essay uh, in Avidly that, that makes this point really beautifully uh, that a lot of us kind of were in incredibly inspired by uh, and just were very driven to riff off of. Um but that, you know, in these online communities, um, people are coming together who, um, I mean, it's it's not totally clear what their positions are with respect to the academy, right? Um, there are a lot of younger people um, who might, they might be undergrads, they might not. Um, but there's a sense of kind of working together to... Uh, uh, bootstrap your own version of the university, what the university might look like, and kind of imagining it together uh, through this collaborative process of building these aesthetics, um, uh, assembling images and all of that. And I feel like we kind of did something similar to that with, uh, uh, you know, with the, the space of the university itself not really being as available to us in the second pandemic year. In some ways, it was this very brain-breaking kind of experience where you're like sitting at your desk for multiple hours a day, kind of zooming in to the university, and then you're just alone, you know, um, at the end of the day again. And I, I feel like echoing Dylan's point, um, yeah, this this group of people, the like birth of this cluster was the time for me when Twitter transitioned from a place where I'm a really awkward kind of fly on the wall, like observing people I've heard of to someone who actually feels like I know some of the people involved. I can have conversations. Um, Cause I, I think Twitter is this simultaneously incredibly alienating. And then also has this like kernel of the utopian to use kind of Jamesonian terms. Like, and we kind of, we're very lucky to find that. Do you think um, Twitter has the potential, academic Twitter specifically, I should say, has the potential to become a kind of dark academic space in its own right? I mean, I think it, it already is. You know, Twitter, uh, perhaps less so than Instagram, you know, is, is an aesthetic platform just like any other 
of the kind of all social media platforms kind of look the same now, you know? And so like, I find myself posting pictures of myself reading a book and drinking coffee because I feel a need to participate in the aesthetic community of the academy. And I mean, if that's not dark academia, then, you know, I don't know what is. So in my experience, yeah, it, it already has been. To take maybe a slightly less utopian tack to it, I think there's also ways in which the kinds of mysterious, occluded power networks and flows of the Academy are also rec- like replicated on academic Twitter, where, and it's almost like there's, if you're not in, you wouldn't know or you wouldn't notice, you know? And that's like the consistent trope of so much dark academia fiction is that you start with this interloper character who slowly becomes, you know, acclimated to the grammars of a certain kind of existence. And I think that becoming a part of academic Twitter, jumping from like fly on the wall or lurker to participant or co-creator makes you increasingly aware of, you know, like who knows each other and how they know each other. And you start to see these sort of maps of relation that occur both positively, as we've been describing, and I think also sometimes more in ways that are maybe more exclusionary or hard to access or not accessible to all. And I think that, you know, in that way, when you think about it as this sort of constructed relational arena that is both very consolidated and also extremely diffuse, there is something sort of dark academic about that. Yeah, I think we, I I feel like this is probably a near universal experience in grad school in English departments now and English adjacent departments where you show up and someone at some point says, well, if you want to be part of the conversation, you should be on Twitter. And then you show up to Twitter and like Olivia said, it's, it's, all of the complicated things about grad school or college compounded because you're in a professional and a non-professional, like a casual environment. It's like people you know and whose essays you've read are posting about their dog. And you like, for me, it's like just totally crippling. You know, like I, I'm like, I won't say anything because I'm afraid I'll say something wrong to the wrong person, you know? So, um, yeah, it's been, it, it's, it has both in it, you know, highs and lows. Yeah. And I, and I actually think that one of the kind of threads of the cluster is this sort of, I don't know, is it a dialectic between like, right, like dark academia is both, um, it both perpetuates some of these negative images and expectations of what university education is supposed to be in terms of like elite access and a sort of like arcane, uh, inaccessible old money status, um, but at the same time, it it, it also democratizes um, something about the university. I mean, not to plug my own piece too much, but I said like you know, like any commodity, now that now that you can get it online, it costs almost nothing or something like that. So I don't know. I mean, I I I think it's probably best to be of two minds there um, because on some level, I mean, it gives you. I mean, I'm talking about dark academia, but but Twitter, it gives you access, and I sort of. There was, I feel like there was, wasn't a particular moment, but I now feel like, you know, I'm just like some clown on online and I'm just doing it, you know? Um, and, uh, um, that was demystifying in a way. So 
I, I increasingly see it not as something important <laughs> or, or like, I don't have to like have some kind of comportment that, that, that will abide by like the strictures of academic discourse. Like uh, a, a professor at my university recently um, wrote in the Chronicle, but because, because the sort of like shit posting ethos of like some of my favorite academics on Twitter is like one of my favorite things about it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not saying anything that matters like 80% of the time. And then of the 20% of the time that um, I do post something that I'm invested in, like maybe half of that is like about my own work. And I think that's great. And people still know, I feel like people still know who I am, what I do. And like, they can reach out to me if we are interested in something similar. There's something about uh, the, the moment that you start to kind of conceive of yourself as a protagonist. Is is kind of incredibly debilitating um, when you when you suddenly start to second guess the kind of uh, tonal differences in in you know every last thing that that goes on on, on your account. Um, something that uh, I'd like to pick up on that that uh, comes through through many of your pieces and 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 Dylan has come up in in some of the allusions you've already made to to your piece is one thing I really like about the cluster is the way it it doesn't try and massage out the difference in perspectives that, that the different contributors take on, on dark academia. This is clearly a kind of uh, nebulous, multifaceted form, and people come at it um, from, from different perspectives um, and have different takes on it. And we have some pieces in the uh, the cluster that, that are, are really taking quite a, a critical tack on uh, what dark academia is and its potential kind of complicities with the neoliberal academy, that kind of thing. And we have other pieces in the cluster that, whilst uh, they're by no means um, uh, ignorant of those criticisms, ultimately come out perhaps with a more reparative or reconciliatory take on it. I wonder how we not necessarily resolve those kind of two sides of the equation, but how we think of them in, in dialogue with each other. Yeah, I think that in the process of sort of curating the cluster or sort of assembling what kinds of different perspectives and objects would end up being included. I do think it was important to Mitch and I and also to, you know, everyone involved that there would be a variety or like a spectrum that was not you know, even all encompassing of everything that one could say about dark academia. And I think that having those sort of critical and those reparative sort of butting up against each other in, in creating this sort of collective dialectical approach, as Dylan was just saying, is, I think, important to us and important to what we wanted to do. And I think that the resolution that seems available to me, both from my own perspective and from the sort of cluster as a whole, is that over half the pieces of the cluster end on the note of organizing and end on the note of collective action or end on the note of coming together with shared struggle, shared values, shared action, shared goals toward the end of making a better world with or without the university through organizing together. And I think that that to me is the the resolution that seems appealing to me for a variety of reasons and it's like okay if along the way you want to enjoy a donna tart novel or love this youtube playlist about being in a haunted library or you know 
feel like you belong in academia by changing your wardrobe. Like, sure, that, like, I don't think there's anything wrong with pleasure. And I think that Mel specifically offers such a brilliant theorization of the things that pleasure can do in the context of dark academia. But even so, I think that the the real goal to me would be the kinds of gestures towards organizing that a bulk of the pieces in the cluster end on. Yeah, and this is something that Olivia and I uh, definitely noticed um or it's it's something that we um became increasingly aware of as we were editing and as the pieces were kind of uh all developing along their 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 respective trajectories that um it's almost like there's this pattern of thinking that recurs across so many of the pieces where um i mean as dylan said there's this dialectic between the you know being critical of dark academia and all of its modes and kind of its complicities with the neoliberal university, its logics, et cetera, et cetera, but then also being attentive to the reparative potentials of, you know, isn't it nice to kind of uh, self-soothe with some of these ambient videos, um, YA novels, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and, you know, the pieces, I think so many of them are kind of shuttling back and forth between those poles, trying to generate energy by thinking them uh, together, uh, as much as possible. And then they kind of like arrive at an impasse. Uh, and I, I don't mean that in a critical way. I mean that, uh, you know, kind of thinking with Lauren Berlant's work in mind in particular, the impasse is like, you know, something that could be generative in some ways. Um, but you know, there's a point near the end of so many of these pieces where that, that shuttling stops and, the thinking kind of takes a a hiccup or a leap out of it and uh, moves to, well, you know what we have to do? We just have to unionize. <laughs> like there's like, <laughs> we can, we can, we can kind of have these, these speculations and it's actually, it's in fact fruitful to um, give form to these contradictions that cut across so many of these objects and, and the narratives that surround them. Uh, but at the end of the day, there's a leap that you have to take from uh, speculation to action. And I think that a lot of these pieces enact that leap in a really exciting way to me. Yeah. And even like alongside that as well, I think that the behind the scenes world that I think comes through in the spirit of the cluster, but maybe not in all of its detail would be the, like how much fun we had doing this, you know, and like the genuine enjoyment of being critical together or the genuine enjoyment of approaching these impasses together and of making, you know, making friends and making colleagues. And I think so many people who were involved in the cluster said something along the lines of like, this was one of my favorite experiences that I've had in my academic career, or this is one of the most enjoyable experiences I've had in terms of my collaborative work. And I think that that is not unrelated to the kinds of things that Mitch is talking about, about this sort of recurring form of thinking. I think that when you have people who are committed to the same kinds of visions of what a better life might look like for all of us, coming together to work out a problem, each of us in our own way, I think that that leads to, you know, both the synergies and the divergences that appear in a really 
like brilliant, vervy, exciting way. I think that the there's a spirit of like fun or enjoyment or pleasure that comes not just in the objects, but like in the work itself. And I think that Hannah and Saronic's piece really points out the ways that that pleasure and kinship can be intimately related to the work of organizing as well. Yeah, and just to say one more thing, uh, kind of riffing off what Olivia was just saying, because uh, I, I think what you're pointing to is so important. Um, I mean, and not to keep reflecting everything that we're saying on this uh, second order level back into the structure of dark academia itself, you know, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> uh, but I mean, I feel like what we're talking about um when we're talking about these tensions, these these push and pulls between these different poles, is uh, a basic, or or I guess a pair of impulses in in dark academia. Right? There's a critical impulse um, which has to do with this narrative form, especially in the novels. This narrative form, where as we've been talking about, this outsider um, arrives at the groves of academe and kind of. Uh, uncovers all of the, um, you know, abuses of power and uh, systematic exclusions that kind of obtain therein, right? Um, there's a critical emotion there. But then the other impulse is a utopian impulse, which I think is what Olivia was just talking about, right? And this has to do with the DIY um, orientation of so many of the online uh, image sharing communities that make up the kind of digital arm of dark academia, right? Where it's like, I mean, how can we vision board a, a university that has a place for us? Um, and so perhaps you could say that the critical and utopian, not the critical and utopian, you know, categorically are, are opposed, but in dark academia, at least they're two, I think, uh, analytically distinguishable impulses. And I think that the play between those impulses is reflected in the pieces too. Just building off what everyone else has said so far, I think this is a question that is like always going to come up, you know, you, you are working on it's, I feel like it's a very common conference question, right? You're working on X cultural object is X cultural object positive or negative. And I feel the desire to ask that question all the time. And it, you know, it's, I have less than an answer and more like, you know, this cultural phenomenon thinking about it is like a toothache. Like, I can't not poke at it and mess with it. And hopefully, you know, we can make that, uh, that poking productive, you know? And I, I think that if it leads to, uh, we should all form a union, then it's incredibly productive. Um, I mean, it reminds me of, um, I've, I've talked about this with you guys in the group chat before, but it reminds me of like Anna Cornblue would host these Jameson reading group meetings and they came out of uh Cyan Nye's talk on Jameson. that was like incredibly popular last year and people would show up and, and we would have these long ranging discussions. And ultimately someone would ask a question that was very much in the vein of like, well, is this positive or negative? Or what do we do about this? Or what do we do about that? And Anna's response would just be, well, we form a union, you know, get out and organize. And it's like, yeah, you know, we can, get, I, I'm invested in this stuff because I have that toothache feeling. I want to poke at the literature. I want to see how it makes me feel. I want to talk about it with other people. Um, and, and I think that that poking is productive. 
And if you have a toothache, I mean, you need dental insurance, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, It it can either cause you, that pain can cause you to finally do something about the toothache or bury it deeper and deeper so you don't have to think about it. Um, You know, and I've done both. (laughs) I'll I'll give a shout out here to um, uh, the Fordham University uh, Graduate Student Union, which um, is making moves right now. Um, and, and their tweets are so good. I think that something that they're, uh, one of their slogans for organizing is like, cura dentalis, cura mentalis, cura rentalis, which is, you know, a d- dental care, mental care, rental care, um, uh, with their, with their sort of, uh, ecclesiastical spin, which I think is awesome. <laughs> uh, they also, they've also been calling their university sinful for union busting, which is something that I, that I wish we could do here. Or maybe in fact we will. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it kind of all comes back to those material concerns, I think, for all of us, you know, and, and it, in its way, dark academia comes back to that, too. You know, I think about Richard in The Secret History, the protagonist of The Secret History, um, almost dying of cold because he is, like, too ashamed to ask for any help from his rich colleagues over the, the winter that he spends, like, he decides to stay in town so he can work and he's like living in this warehouse with a hole in the roof. And I mean, that moment to me reads almost like Dickensian parody or something, but those concerns are very real. You know, how am I going to pay the rent? How am I going to, uh, what am I going to do about this toothache? <laughs> you know, I, those are for, for the authors of this cluster, I, you know, I, I think I can speak for all of them when I say that's the stuff we're really worried about. You know, we love academia. We want to do it, uh, when it looks like this at least, but those material concerns are so important. Yeah. And I think that, Gunnar, to your point there, I think that what you just got at was something else that was important in the assembling of the cluster, which is that this would be by, you know, precarious academics capaciously defined, you know, so our contributors, contributors, sorry, um, our grad students, early career scholars, people who left the academy, an undergraduate student, you know, people who are actively in these sort of alt-ac worlds, we were definitely thinking that there was kind of an animating concern about precarity in a very real way that I think generated a lot of the early conversations that would become the work that appears in the cluster. And I think that when you're talking about this kind of precarity, like this is the stuff of our daily lives. And just as Gunnar was saying, like this is the real stuff. And so I think that there's a way in which the form and the content of the cluster are also linked there in terms of the positioning of the contributors themselves. Yeah, very much so. One of the things that I that I really appreciate about the cluster is the way in which dark academia ends up becoming a kind of uh, framing device uh, by which the cluster can be many things at once. You know, this this is you could call it a cluster about precarity. You could call it a cluster about solidarity. You could call it a cluster about Donatart to some extent. Um, but dark academia ends up being exactly the right lens uh, that all those things go, kind of. Um, uh, coalesce within or, or can be made to coalesce within. Uh, absolutely. Um, I wonder if I could um, turn our attention back to Tart for, for just a moment. The secret history is, is this er text for dark academia that comes up in several of the, the essays in the cluster. And I was intrigued by what Gunnar mentioned earlier about this kind of strange question of 
uh, Tart's reputation within the academy and kind of uh, where she sits sort of prestige or reputation-wise and how that um, somewhat ambiguous critical reputation, if you like, may in some way have a relationship with her identity as as this um this figure who kind of hangs over this kind of spectre that's haunting all of dark academia so i wondered if any of you would, would like to say anything about kind of uh your own relationship with with tart's work uh where you see this question of how tart is kind of positioned critically um and perhaps how you see her informing uh, dark academia as a, as a later formation too i have a weird answer to this so somebody else with more polished thoughts should go first <laughs> i think you just invited yourself to go first yeah okay all right yeah i guess i can't not go first now um <laughs> so i will say that i mean i don't have as many uh packaged thoughts or inklings about uh tart's position in the canon and her kind of uh perhaps as gunner was alluding to uh earlier the kind of apparent disparity between her reception uh in the the reading public more broadly and kind of how she's been taken up or or perhaps ignored uh within the you know post 45 literature academy um so I'd be really curious to hear like what what Gunnar has to say about that and and what all of you have to say about that. But for me, I will say that I first encountered the whole dark academia world as an online phenomenon, as a series of online image cultures uh, centered on Tumblr um, in particular. Uh, before I read the Secret History, um, and I spent a lot of time. Uh, on these social media click holes, uh, just like viewing mood board after mood board before actually picking up the novel. And in fact, uh, to be candid, I didn't, well, I do have a physical copy of the novel, uh, for, for reference purposes, but I, I listened to the novel, uh, uh, early in the, the process of, uh, thinking through what would become my piece for the cluster, her voice. Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, so, so for for listeners who who have not uh, listened to have not had the the singular pleasure of listening to the Secret History audiobook, I would I would thoroughly thoroughly recommend it. Donna Tartt's reading voice just oh, exquisite. Her bunny voice is so haunting. Um, but I will say, um, and this is a little bit more specific to my piece, perhaps uh, that the experience that I had of listening to this quite long audiobook while wandering around my my sunny California campus um you know walking to work walking to go teach walking to go tutor going to the library whatever was a very uh revealing experience to me I feel like I unlocked something or like I, I was able to grasp something about Tart's work and the way that it functions aesthetically um through this kind of weird uh attentionally diffused uh listening experience like this is ambient literature this is not a book that i mean it is a book that can absorb you and and does absorb many but it is literature that is so much about uh creating this encompassing sense of immersion in space and that it, literature that that like so many of the uh 
ambient music playlists that are associated with Dark Academia that you can find on YouTube and on Spotify. It's kind of meant to wash over you. Like, not a lot happens in that book. I was going to say, it's just, it's really a shame we didn't get an essay about Donna Tartt's self-read audiobook of The Secret History, because, I mean, what a just startling document that is. Um, I recommended the book to a friend of mine after I read it, you know, it's kind of, um, <laughs> perpetuating her, um, allure, you know, as passing it on to someone else. And they picked up the audiobook. And, uh, my friend was like, this is incredible, you know, and this is my friend who's like a nurse who has a one hour, a two hour commute every single day. And she's like, I listened to the book in like two weeks, you know, and, um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to even describe Tart's voice, but it's it's very arresting. I, I recommend if you're listening to this right now, just go look up a video of Donna Tart and um, without knowing what she's going to sound like and listen to her voice. Yeah, I think it does add such a layer to um, this whole this whole uh, experience of the of the book, because um, I don't know, there's I, I read The Goldfinch in 2015 um, which was a big old book with a painting on the cover and everyone was reading it. And I was like, oh, cool. I had no conception of Tart's reputation. Um, I think I, um, I really enjoyed that book. Um, and then didn't really think about it or her all that much kind of in the intervening years. And then Dark Academia made its way to me as, um, uh, I think the first thing, first time I saw the phrase was like a, was like a, a style guide or like a, a, a clothing mood board that was like, you know, wear this, wear these tweeds or whatever, and like, you know, uh, uh, wine-colored turtlenecks and and such things. And I was like, oh, that's neat. And I saved it. I think I, I think I still have it on my phone because um, I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool look. And then you realize, like, oh, this is like, you know, certain kinds of. Um, this is like a, this is a whole sub community, right? Um, and um, you know, I I I went to to Yale, so so then I got there and I was like, people are dressing like this, but like, is it a thing? Because isn't the whole thing about dark academia that you're kind of it's a, that you're imitating it in a way, and that you know that you're not it actually? Um, and then my some of my colleagues here and professors are like, they just look like that. <laughs> so I had this weird kind of like. Um, reflexive relation to it in a way. Um, and then I also, I, I read, I read the secret history, um, months after we were, this process was underway. Um, and I also, I listened to the audiobook and I, and I almost want to pick at like, why is it that, that so many of us were like, okay, I got to read this book now. Um, I'll just listen to it. Right. Um, and I, and I mean, I don't, I don't personally make like a separation between the books that I want to listen to and the ones that I want to read, unless I'm annotating them to write a paper or something like, you know, I, 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 I read as much as I can, um, or I listen to as much as I can on audiobooks. But but there is something to the fact that you're like, well, you know, I, I mean, I wasn't expecting to annotate it, I guess, in a sense. I was like, well, you know, I'm doing this cluster. I can listen to this book. Um, I'll just kind of like pick up the vibes, you know, the atmosphere, um, the kind of like what what kinds of uh, adjectives does she like to use? Um, I'll, I'll go swimming in this book, and that's all I need to kind of do this work. And I think there's something about that with dark academia that, like, you know, w whatever your entry point is, it's not it doesn't necessarily have to be like here's the text, you know. And eventually we all make our way back to it and talk about it. But 
Um, I think it's more something that you kind of live inside of in a way because it's, it's an aesthetic. And I, I mean, before I got to the essay that I wrote, I was just trying to think about like, what is an aesthetic? What's the deal with that? Um, anyway, I guess I was supposed to talk about Donna Tartt's voice, but like, uh, she, she, she seems to replicate the experience of Richard Papin. I mean, she has this, this, this twang, uh, to her voice, which is so startling because she's from like Alabama. Right. Um, and, and I think that when you, um, see the kind of sum total of her work and all the signifiers that she's using and the kind of uh, sophistication and sort of elite um, um, icon iconography that she uses, you're like, oh, this is like a Northeasterner. Um, and and she has this sort of Southern, uh, I don't know what, but it, it, it truly is like, it, 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 it like twists the whatever you have going in your head to hear her um, for 24 hours, because this is a very long and slowly read audiobook. To to live inside of that for so long, I mean, it's in, now now dark academia is sort of inextricable from her voice in a way for me. I will take like a converse position here, both as the person here who read the book as opposed to listening to the book, and also as someone like to be frank who doesn't really like this book very much, which is maybe an odd thing to say, but I had read the book when I was a teenager and then I reread the book. I remembered almost nothing about it. And so I was like, okay, I have to reread the book for this. And it was like, a very like grim. I remember the day that I read it. It was like a very grim gray day in like Philadelphia where I lived. It was sort of like wintry. And I was like, Ooh, this is going to be great. And I like curled up on my couch to read the book. And I just did not have an amazing time. And I guess I think that the reason why I did not have an amazing time is because first of all, I did read it and not listen to it. Right. So there's this, a different mode of kind of atmosphere or swimming or all of these words that you've all been referring to, but also because I don't find the atmosphere to be one that I want to be swimming in for very long. Like I feel like, you know, swimming in dark academia, especially as sort of rendered in the secret history feels like swimming in a little bit of like a mucky lake for me. And I think that also to Mitch's point earlier, Mitch said that not much happens in this book, but that is like not actually true, right? Like a lot of things happen in the book, but it doesn't feel like anything happens. And I think that that gets to so much of the organization of dark academia in general in that like, there's a sense of like, importance or inflatedness or seriousness or like weightiness to what's going on. But also it feels like there's not that much happening, even though there maybe is. And I think that that sort of feeling of an atmosphere where even like major events, like murdering your classmate can start to not feel like events anymore is part of what dark academia is doing more generally. Yeah, it's about that's so true. It's about it's a book that's about and that 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 thematizes uh quite arrestingly the the aerosolization of dramatic events into atmosphere perhaps you might you might say, you know, uh uh Bunny's kind of uh uncovering of the the spoiler alert to to uh, anyone who hasn't uh <laughs> read this book uh uh, the murder that th- this <laughs> bunny dies in the first sentence. It's not a spoiler. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have to put a spoiler warning in the you know in the description so that people don't get spoiled on the secret history. Very very important. Yeah, a book that came out twenty years ago. Thirty years ago, right? Oh my gosh, you're right. Yeah, that's right. Wow. Yeah, that's right. It's at it's at secret history at thirty. Yeah. Um. But uh, I guess the 
it is a spoiler, but when Bunny uncovers that this, you know, the rest of his group has, you know, murdered this this farmer in this bacchanalian frenzy, his his having figured this out kind of um uh or, or the murder itself like diffuses into the the atmosphere of the book and kind of just saturates every scene like bunny's cracking these really bad jokes and everyone else is just vaguely uncomfortable and richard's like what is this weird vibe that i'm catching like what's going on and you know the mystery of the book is trying to figure out what what the source of that strange uh miasmatic atmosphere is um the other thing i wanted to say on donna tart's voice you know her voice itself has emerged as one of these stock tropes of dark, uh, dark academia in fact um you know so much about the secret history in particular gets slyly referenced and quoted uh both in these online image sharing spaces and in other uh novels that uh, are today especially uh explicitly marketed by publishers as dark academia novels no this is uh the terms of the industry that that people on the inside the industry are using um, rather than something that we're kind of uh, impressing upon it. Um, But even her voice itself is one of these tropes. Um, And so one of the books that I uh, mentioned and and do a a kind of flyby reading of in my piece is a novel called A Lesson in Vengeance, which is like a YA dark academia uh, thriller um that came out the other year and um the love interest slash enemy character in this book is a very thinly veiled donna tart analog uh no she's like a a young prodigy hotshot writer uh from the south uh and because uh, <laughs> i just decided at some point that the audiobook was my modality of encounter with dark academia fiction i listened to the audiobook of this book and the reader of this book um, puts on her best Donna Tart impression when she reads uh, this character's dialogue, and it was, it's just very arresting to hear not only to hear Donna Tart read her own work, but to hear other people like summon up this voice, this papery, twangy voice. Yeah, I think I think once you start to look for it, you see those things about Tart and about the secret history in so much of this fiction, you know, that in the like literary subgenre side of it. And that's kind of like one of the things that that's why I was driven to genre, um, you know, in my essay to think through this stuff. But like Donna Tart as person, like persona kind of appearing throughout these novels, um, Bad Habits by Amy Gentry, which shows up in Olivia's essay, I think, is like um, a a kind of retelling of the secret history. Um, And yeah, what made me think about this was the idea that it's like these novels where nothing happens for a hundred pages and then someone is murdered and then nothing happens for a hundred pages. You know, that that kind of uh, vibe, if you will. Uh, feels very unique to the secret history. And I think it's something that a lot of these dark academia authors picked up on and sought to replicate. I'd like to ask a little bit about the relationships that exist between, uh, if you like, the, the, the different forms that dark academia takes, the different manifestations it has. Clearly the cluster touches on on a great many of those, but to be reductive for for a second and think about, as it were, the 
uh, principles that are creative manifestations of it. On one hand, as we've heard, we have uh, a literary subgenre, um, particularly in the YA space, although not exclusively. And on the other hand, we have um, this Tumblr culture, this TikTok culture, this kind of self-curation, uh, visual, collaging, mood board type thing. And Mitch, you mentioned one of your answers a moment ago, uh, you alluded a little to um, uh, crossover between those, as it were, you know, people referencing Tart in, in the kind of Tumblr world. Um, I wonder if, if any of you could say a little bit more about how those kind of two sides of the coin speak to each other. I mean, are there people on Tumblr who are also writing Dark Academia fiction, for example? Where do these kind of points of contact lie? So, uh, just because you teed that up so perfectly for me, I, I'll, I'll go first with this one. Uh, so the answer to, the, to your, your last question, are there people who are participating in this image curation on Tumblr who are also, in fact, writing their own dark academia fiction? I mean, the answer is yes. Um, and in fact, this is kind of the empirical uh, kernel of, of the piece that I wrote, where um, the, you know, the mood board, this kind of, there's a stock grammar for it now. It's this three-by-three arrangement of images that people find through, uh, you know, usually through Pinterest, uh, and then uh, kind of stitched together via Canva, and then post uh, to their various social media channels. The mood board has become an important part of the writing process for a lot of contemporary novelists, especially um, writers of genre fiction, and particularly uh, writers of YA genre fiction, um, and um, an umbrella which, of course, includes dark academia fictions. Um, and the way that these um, mood boards work for these authors is, um, you know, it's a it, it, it's it can kind of show up at different parts of the writing process. Um, I know that. Many of these writers uh, kind of develop ideas initially at the level of vibes, like, what do I want my book to feel like? What kinds of images do I want to evoke? What kinds of feelings do I want to evoke in my writing? What kinds of atmospheres do I want to create? And, um, you know, these online image curation practices are ways for writers to kind of start um, coalescing uh what will become the raw materials for the eventual literary work. Um, but then also, of course, uh, farther down the line, uh, these kinds of uh, aesthetics or mood boards or collages uh, are, are promotional tools uh, that the authors use to be like, you know, especially authors who are just uh, starting out and don't necessarily have literary clout to throw around and, you know, whose name alone isn't going to get readers automatically interested in their work like oh well do you want to feel like you are uh to uh invoke the title of the most popular dark academia ambient video uh studying in a haunted library with ghosts you want to read books that make you feel like that well here's a bunch of images of that stuff which is what you will find in my books um so there is a very empirical and real crossover between these two worlds especially in the world of YA fiction and I try to make the the, the case in my piece that uh this kind of the diffuse atmospheres of the mood board kind of uh, you can read them uh in the 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 literature itself 
I think there's also in the Tumblr context and also in other social media spaces, an interesting flow that's going another direction where the very like hegemonic great books canon gets absorbed into these dark academia syllabi almost like on the aesthetics wiki you'll see something that it's like here's a list of dark academia books obviously you know a portrait of dorian gray was not based on a tumblr mood board but a bunch of people are sort of deciding that this is now dark academia or things like the odyssey get pulled up onto these lists like all very often it's sort of these european classic in scare quotes, you know, lists of novels that you would not be surprised to see in like an intro to the major English class that, and so you have these things like vibrating alongside each other, right? You're like, okay, here's Oscar Wilde and here's Olive Blake and this is Dark Academia. And it sort of doesn't make sense, but at the same time, it kind of does because there's all of these different flows from publishing and literature and the academy and social media that are kind of intersecting to create this odd nebulous category by which both of those things can appear. That that opens up uh, something else that I wanted to kind of uh, ask about, um, which is, is to really pick up on what you're saying there, Olivia, about the kind of capaciousness of this as a thing. I, I don't want to get too far into relitigating the question of whether we call this a genre or a form or a structure of feeling or something else because that's very well done in the cluster already but whatever we call it um, as I mentioned in some of my my emails to you during the editing process uh, since I started editing this this cluster with you I start seeing dark academia everywhere and I'm someone who who, who came to this cluster with an awareness of the term as something kind of floating around in cult- cultural discourse but not something I had any particular engagement with so I was watching um, an old episode of The Simpsons the other day. And it's the episode where Mr. Burns discovers that he's got a long lost son, played by Rodney Dangerfield. And um, he obviously wants his son, who's a kind of uncouth guy who doesn't have any kind of manners. He hasn't been brought up in the right kind of environment. He's very embarrassing to Mr. Burns. So he wants to try and get uh, Larry, his son, uh, into his alma mater, which is Yale. Um, So you have the bigwigs from Yale turn up in the great big wood panelled office at the power plant where Mr. Burns works. And um, uh, Burns is trying to to bribe them to to let uh, Larry in because he's, he's such a kind of terrible student. And, um, you know, he's, I think, at the, you know, they say, oh, that's going to cost you an airport or something like that. You're going to, you know, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and, you know, that spoke so directly to so many of, of your pieces. Um, the, these coalescences between the, the, the practices and structures by which the university runs, um, donor practices, that kind of thing. Um, but then I caught myself and I sort of okay, am I just shoehorning something into the kind of dark academic lens because it kind of ticks a couple of boxes here? So I suppose what I'm asking here really is, are there signifiers, are there qualities that something has to have in order to be dark academia? Or am I being too sort of rigid and reductive by trying to put that kind of framework around it? I love being of two minds because then you get to say two things. Um, so, so the first thing that I was going to say is that I think that um, I feel pretty strongly that dark academia is like a born online cultural phenomenon that then gets sort of exported out into <laughs> the literary world because 
um, people figure out that it's sort of marketable, right? And and by literary, I really mean publishing. Of course, there's a broader view that you can take. Um, so so I think that the sort of like the literary production sort of follows the um, the the constitution of an audience or a public online that that is prepared to buy the books. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, this is something that I say. Um, in my piece or grapple with is that like the original dark academia is just academia. Right. And um, I, I, I talk about how, um, you know, Yale, the university where, where I'm in a, in my PhD program is, um, is itself sort of draping itself in, in uh, old, old fashioned signifiers that are much, much, the signifiers are much older than the university itself. I mean, uh, in that sense, like neo-Gothic architecture is like one of the early moments in dark academia. I think you could make that argument, right? And I talk about how this this big library at Yale, Sterling Library, which gets talked about, I think, in the introduction to the cluster as well, or there's a photo of it, right? It's sort of this like dark academia er space in a way because it's made out of concrete. You know, it was built. Uh, starting in the 1920s, and it's named after a lawyer who represented Standard Oil, right? So, um, in a way, uh, I, I I think that like you can do a long durée where you're like, oh, the these practices are much are much older, and I think like you're like, okay, is like. Um, I don't know. I think it encompasses this this like very very American kind of literary and cultural urge, you know, that you can see in something like The Great Gatsby. Even that's like, you know, it's not that you dream of uh, becoming a billionaire or whatever. It's like like the the objet petit a of American culture is to have been born rich, right? And and I think that you can sort of. Um, you can trace that into the prehistory of dark academia. And I think maybe the only requirement then is that you you set it on a university or something like that, right? And so I, I think Yale, like, this is my argument, and it's really, like, totally, I owe so much to Annie's um, framing, which um, uh, her her paper was originally um, in the, in the ASAP panel. Um, and that was like a huge light bulb for me because she was talking about how like universities themselves are producing dark academia imagery, um, uh, whether they know it or not. Um, and then I was thinking about like, where do I walk around every single day? Like how much of this is, um, free of pretense or whatever. So, um, I don't know. I think I take an open view, which is that like, yeah, probably just about anything, um, including stuff from before the internet probably can be dark academic. Um, as long as you're, um, as long as the academia and the dark are there perhaps. Yeah, I think that's so true, Dylan. And I think that the way that you're talking about it gets at for me that, and this is why I'm inclined toward describing dark academia more as like a structure of feeling than a particular genre. Although obviously we have, I think, divergences and convergences in this group and in the cluster as a whole, is that I almost wonder if the organizing principle here is not any particular like signifier of content, but rather an element of like circulation, fashioning and performance, right? Where like Wuthering Heights is maybe not dark academia, but reading Wuthering Heights at Yale wearing a tweed jacket, now it is, right? So there has to be the styling and the fashioning and the pretense, as you say, Dylan, and the performance for it to kind of get there. And so I think that it's almost more about the 
the structure of actions than it is about the particular content in that it's it's not 100% free floating. It's not totally unmoored, right? Like as Dylan says, there has to be the dark and there has to be the academia. But how you get there doesn't necessarily have to involve a particular university or a particular historical moment, although it is obviously enmeshed in one. It's you get there via a kind of performance that I think Mitch's point about mood boards and publishing also like sort of lends itself to. I, I totally agree with everything that's been said and 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 all of what all of you are saying and the framing of your question, uh, Michael, is just making me think that, you know, maybe the question is not even so much like what ontologically makes something a dark academia object or a dark academia phenomenon, but rather just like maybe more simply, like pragmatically, like what insights does it unlock if we understand or read something as a dark academic phenomenon, as a dark academic object? Um, yeah, because I think I think that, you know, I don't quite know how to articulate this uh, cleanly or, or succinctly, but I mean, you could pull so much out of the secret history. You can pull so much out of the Great Gatsby. You can pull so much out of Sterling Library. Like there's a million angles on 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 all of these things across all these modalities, right? Um, uh, you could pull so much out of Invisible Man to uh, uh, <laughs> to shout out a one of my favorite moments from Annie's piece that, that we've been talking about so enthusiastically. Um, but to read something as dark academia is to direct the reader's attention to uh, the ways in which that object stages certain struggles, certain tensions that have to do with the negotiation of academic prestige, access to elite academic spaces, signifiers of uh, classicist uh, learning and belonging and the kind of exclusions that they affect. It's just to draw one's attention to the ways that these issues are staged. Maybe that maybe that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly persuaded by that. In a week or two's time, I'm going to be teaching um, Ishmael Reed's uh, novel Japanese by Spring, which is like a culture war campus novel from the early 90s. And maybe I'm wrong, but I'm sort of, I'm doubtful that that's a kind of um, big text for online dark academia cultures, right? Like in many ways, it, it doesn't fit the bill in, in, in lots of senses in terms of, um, you know, who, who the, you know, the protagonist is, is uh, you know, in some ways a complete insider. He feels a bit like an outsider, but he's a, he's a lifelong professor. Um, but through the process of working on, on this cluster with you all, it's been impossible for me to not kind of apply some of the kind of logics of your pieces, of your arguments, the way you're thinking through dark academia to some of the things that, that Reed's thinking about, which are about, even though he's writing 30 years ago, uh, that the kind of the, the, the darkness of market economics as they affect the university is really what he's, he's writing about to a large extent. Uh, Olivia, you had something else you wanted to add to that? Yeah. And I was just sort of going to jump off of what Mitch was saying, which is that in some of our conversations throughout the editing process is that we described dark academia as like this prism that can either sort of separate things out or coalesce other things. And I think that that all and alongside, you know, your point about The Simpsons and Reed's novel that 
this is a prism by which you can refract other things that might not necessarily seem like they fit. And I think that even some of the pieces in the cluster do that, right? Like Lucia and Caroline are talking about Fire Emblem. And I don't think that most people play Fire Emblem to be like, ooh, like, you know, my dark academic life. But by viewing that game through the lens of dark academia, these very profound, moving personal experiences sort of surface in their essay. And so I think that by viewing dark academia as more of like a prismatic lens by which to approach all kinds of cultural texts, then, you know, you have this massively capacious net by which to think about Everything from Billions, the TV show, to Tumblr, to TikTok, to Fire Emblem. Like, we made the joke, both Mitch and I, in our posts on Twitter about the cluster, and I specifically made it in, like, the Stefan SNL way of, like, this place has everything. But I do think there's a way that dark academia has everything in terms of the way that you can bring it up to various kinds of cultural objects and various kinds of cultural structures. Uh, Dylan already brought up uh, reference Lacan earlier, so I'm going to reference Foucault so we can just cross off more squares on the theory, uh, um, everyone's theory bingo boards at home. But I think something we're all circling around is that college has become a very important structuring factor in American society. And to the extent that globalization and, and global Americanization exists, Everywhere, you know, so it, and to get to the Foucault, I mean, prison looks like a school, looks like your home life. All of these structures kind of come to resemble each other. So I, I do think, you know, I, I think that it's dark academia has been really useful for us to look at a different issue, an issue from a bunch of different ways. I, one of my favorite, um, things that David Harvey has written is like describing Marx's methodology is like walking through a long hallway with a series of windows and you look through each window to try and get a glimpse of what's outside the hallway. Um, and dark academia feels like both the hallway that you're walking through and the object outside the hallway that you're trying to get a glimpse of. Like it's just been so productive. And I think partially too, that that comes from Donna Tartt in The Secret History being this almost encyclopedic novel where it just touches on so many things. Um, all of that is at play here. You know, I, I think that we risk <laughs> turning dark academia into nothing when we say it's everything. But I think you could analyze just about any aspect of a contemporary American culture through the lens of colleges and co like the collegization of everything. So yeah, I, I think it's, <laughs> I think dark academia is everything. And, and it's maybe worth um, just saying, what, what was the name of our, our panel at ASAP where we were sort of trying to kind of get at, you know, genres what was our, what of was precarity, our, genres of precarity, genres of precarity, um, dark academia and the immiseration of the university. Right. And, and so I don't think like, like our first instinct was to, to read this kind of phenomenon in light of the transformation of higher education, which we are currently observing and, and living through. Um, and I think, you know, most of us are kind of around the same 
place in um, in our in our PhD uh, or or kind of grad school journeys. But I think that like you know uh, some of our contributors were like um, uh, closer to the um, the recession, which is which is where uh, from from everything that I've heard was was a sort of hinge point where where universities sort of could use the knives they'd been sharpening for for years and years and years to start. Um, you know, cutting away at, 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 um, at budgets. And, um, uh, I think that like, I don't know, I think that's a way in for a lot of us is just this feeling that now, now we're working at a business that's delivering a commodity to its, um, to its customers. And, and this is, I mean, from what I understand, it's really how administrators think about what they do, albeit with this veneer of like, you know, we're we're dispensing the kind of liberal humanistic education. Um, but but I, I don't know. It's a totally incoherent position. Right. Um, at, at least that's how it seems to to a lot of us. I'd like to pick up on a, a couple of things that have come up in in, in recent answers. Gunnar, when you were talking a moment ago, you, you were talking about the, the kind of centrality of, of the university as a feature in American life. And, and Dylan, in one of your answers earlier, talking about the kind of um, the, the material qualities of, of uh, American college campuses, the way even the most kind of venerable and august American universities in their material qualities are to an extent kind of cosplaying as a kind of classical European aesthetic, you know, these grand buildings that are actually all from the 20s and made in concrete and that kind of thing. So that kind of prompts me to, to, to ask you all, um, how how U.S. specific or U.S. centric is this as a phenomenon? Uh, and maybe that's in some ways an unfair question, because as our discussion has borne out, you're all writing to this informed by your own perspectives of life in the academy, which is, is life in, in the U.S. academy. But yeah, I wonder if you could speak at all to the potential international dimensions of this or, or, or lack of dimensions, if you think there is a real kind of uh, American centricity to this. If everyone's chewing on that answer, I can toss something out really quickly, which is that one angle I I I was I meant to explore and and ended up sort of like taking a different direction was how there's kind of a weird overlap between like dark academic um, mood board culture, like there's an aesthetic overlap between these images of kind of statues and paintings and you know Western European buildings and and the kind of like I don't know if we've all seen these like Europa kind of fascist Twitter accounts, which are explicitly kind of or implicitly kind of white nationalist, um, kind of reactionary uh, um, um, aesthetic accounts, which are painting, you know, are posting paintings and and art and music, and and there is a sort of like um, unbearable whiteness to this whole phenomenon. So. Um, I don't know. There, there, there is an obsession with Europeanness in a way, which I think is such an American thing, though. So, so I, I don't know. I can't speak to like the production of DA stuff elsewhere, but, but I feel like it's constantly reaching out of itself in a way. I mean, I think that uh, in the cluster, Amatala's essay gets at some of this international circulation in a really great way, where she talks about how 
the like colonial buildings in India become these sort of metonymic representations of access to the life of the mind, right? So clearly, like in her own very grounded personal experience, there is this global circulation all and like an attachment to Europeanness from a different direction than the American attachment to Europeanness for obvious, you know, socio-historical political reasons there. And I do think also as a side note in the cluster, I feel like we were very lucky to have multiple like perspectives from international scholars and have those sort of budding to get up against each other, whether or not they explicitly discussed, you know, the international location in the exact way that Amatala's essay, for example, does. So I suppose as we start drawing to to a close here, I'd I'd like to to ask you all uh, one more broad question here, which is about the kind of um, the temporality of of dark academia, if you like. So much of the cluster and so much of our discussion today has given a really great account of the sort of socio-political, socio-economic explanations, if I can be that instrumental about it, for for why dark academia is is having this kind of cultural moment, why this seems to be something that speaks to our times, especially for those of us who who work in the academy, but not necessarily just those of us who work in the academy right now in the in the current moment. But that kind of leaves me with the question of of what now? What's what's the future for dark academia as a a structural feeling, as an online community, as a, as a literary genre? Do you see this as something that, that kind of has legs as a critical term, if you like, or are you viewing it uh, very much as a kind of immediate reaction and response to, to um, particular present conditions? That is a really, really good question. And I think that, you know, I, I'm of two minds, to use Dylan's phrase from earlier. But I think that on the one hand, there already has been like a durability to dark academia, right? Like this surfaces on Tumblr in the early 2010s. And so we have at least a decade roughly of dark academic content. So there's some kind of durability or portability there. But on the other hand, I'm reminded of the moment when, I think this was a couple months ago when the Telegraph piece came out being like, you know, the hottest new trend for teens is dark academia. And Dylan sent that link to our group chat and said, it's over. And I think that there's a degree to which... There's a degree to which that's true, you know, that I think that it's like the the idea of the structure of artistic re- like revolutions, right? Where there's the thing that's new and then it becomes mainstream and then it becomes ripe for parody and then it becomes like simply played out and at which point it's ripe for being becoming new again, right? And so I think that while there is this durability over time, I do think we've we have hit or are approaching a kind of critical saturation point that will force dark academia if it is going to continue to reinvent itself by way of irony or parody or some other mode of, you know, re-engaging its central premises so that it can continue to feel the sense of the new in some new way. Yeah. Have we reached peak dark academia, right? That's the, that's the question. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to, I mean, I have like, I don't want to let my personal investments uh, cloud my judgment here, but at the same time, you know, I think that dark academia as an aesthetic formation, you know, it, it, it occupies a bunch of different temporalities at the same time, right? Like on the one hand, as Olivia was pointing out, it occupies this temporality of the churn of fashion and trend, uh, 
which is obviously accelerated by the online, you know, hype cycles, um, you know, like there's a way in which dark academia is, uh, I mean, maybe this is the owl of Minerva, you know, flying at dusk, right. You know, maybe this is like accidentally, uh, already the, what was dark academia cluster? I'm not sure. Uh, you know, because now, now people are starting to talk about, uh, cottage core. I feel like cottage core was like the next thing after dark academia, like kind of was cemented, uh, in the fashion discourse. And now goblin core, you know, now, we're, now we're in a goblin core moment. Somehow we're all going goblin mode. We're all, we're all living in our little caves and, you know, they're strewn with trash. And yeah, I mean, so the, there's a way in which dark academia is in this churn, um, but at the same time, as we've been insisting on in the cluster and in this conversation, I think rightly, uh, what distinguishes dark academia from these other trends, it seems to me, is its imbrication with the institution of the university. And that has, that involves a different temporality. Uh, you know, there are campuses where grad students have been trying to unionize for decades. Um Obviously, a building like Sterling Memorial Library or the the uh, Indian Colonial Gothic buildings that Amatala does a beautiful reading of in her piece, like these are old, these are really old, uh, you know, uh, phenomena and objects. I mean, Thorstein Veblen was complaining about this stuff at the turn of the 20th century, right? So I, I think that even if it ends up transforming, I think that the the kind of aesthetic problematics that dark academia. Uh, condenses will continue even if the name shifts. And I think I'm glad that some, some, I think it was Olivia mentioned the aesthetics wiki, which I think is just like, it was such a crucial document for us when we were early in this being like, okay, what the fuck is this actually? And like somebody did all this work of saying, you know, here is what dark academia is. And I, you know what? They know better than I do, frankly. Um, but, but something about the aesthetics wiki page for dark academia, which, which I think is notable for all of us is like in the year since we started working on this, the, the list of related academias has exploded. I bet there is a goblin academia hyperlink on that page right now, you know? And, and so for me, it's like, you know, I think the phrase I use in my piece is like, it's, it's, it's on an identificatory menu item or dark academia is an identificatory menu item on, on the sort of like neoliberal kind of like, uh, 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 self-fashioning, um, store or whatever. Um, and so I feel like, you know, it doesn't have to go anywhere as long as it's profitable for somebody, for somebody else to be, you know, dark academia for them to sort of like clout cloak themselves in the signifiers, right. Of, of this, of this, um, aesthetic formation. Right. So, I mean, in, on some level, it's like now the label exists, and uh, um, anybody who wants to sort of spend their time and money being that will be able to do so forever. Um, and and um, if it goes away as a term of of academic uh, usage or utility, um, I don't think it's going to go away as something that people claim on some level. If I can just read a Google knowledge panel really quickly in response to what you were just talking about, Dylan. <clears throat> goblin academia. Goblin academia is the cross between goblin core and the academia suffix. 
It primarily focus, comma, it primarily focuses on themes including various academic pursuits, nature, the collection, hoarding, hoarding is in scare quotes, uh, of numerous items such as rocks, copious shiny objects, shrubbery, specifically those otherwise overlooked, and other discarded odds and ends. There you have it. We should have seen this coming because, like, Heidegger was the original goblin academia, right? He moved to a hut <laughs> to, to go do his nefarious writings. Um, yeah. I mean, I think if you've, if, you've ever, if you've ever been in, like, a, you know, a particular kind of very senior academic's office, then the idea that there is a kind of coalescence between dark academia and, and going full goblin mode um, is, it's not a, that's not a new thing, right? That's, that's a connection that's, that's been there a long time. I, I think part of what we've all been talking about is why genre is so useful for me as a, as an analytical concept, um, is that these things kind of appear on the scene and then they change and they bubble up and they change again to do some very light historicizing, looking at the two times when dark academia kind of enters the scene, it's 2010 after the 08 financial collapse. And it's during the uh, COVID ongoing COVID pandemic. So these two moments where we are coming to terms with like the what feels like it might be the downfall of our society you know the always delayed apocalypse might actually be upon us um you know maybe dark academia will show up every time we have a moment of crisis you know it'll it'll be our dark night you know coming to save us or or not so save us um i i think that I could see a future where dark academia, this is the low point and it only gets bigger. I could see in 2035 Disney releasing a Captain America movie where people are like, they finally made a dark academia Captain America. Like I could see that happening. You know, I think, I think the potential for massive, massive commercial exploitation of this is, is latent within it. Um, and whether or not that happens. Who knows? You know, so I, I, I think, you know, I think we could get the future where dark academia gets bigger. I think we could get the future where it kind of recedes and comes back. But I, I think that that's what culture is now. It's like all these little things that are going to get bigger and smaller and you can pick and choose them. And, you know, who knows? You know, we're all just goblins uh, picking shrubberies to add to our uh, caves. Well, I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Um I look forward to bringing you all back for a, a, a repeat in, in 10 years' time where we can redo the cluster and redo the podcast and ask where Dark Academia is then, if indeed uh, universities are still standing. Uh, so thank you all very much for joining me. I'd like to thank uh, all four of my guests, Mitch Terrio, Olivia Stoll, Dylan Davidson, and Gunnar Taylor. And you can read the Dark Academia cluster on Post 45 Contemporaries now. I've been and presumably will continue to be Michael Doherty, and you've been listening to Pod 45, the Post 45 Contemporaries podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, and if you'd like to leave us a positive rating and review, that helps other people find the show. Keep an eye out for more episodes arriving soon to accompany our exciting lineup of forthcoming clusters. Over the next few months, Contemporaries will be publishing clusters on Ali Smith, Lydia Davis, Boredom, David Berman, Literature in the Christian Right, The Fast and Furious franchise, RuPaul's Drag Race, and lots more. If you're interested in pitching us an idea for a cluster, 
please email us at post45contemporaries at gmail.com. Further information on what we look for in a pitch can be found on our website, post45.org, which is, of course, where you can also find all our previous clusters, including the subject of today's discussion. This podcast was written, recorded, and produced in the third person by Michael Doherty. Our theme music is the theme from the Post 45 Contemporaries podcast by Michael Doherty, and it is now playing in reverse.